coming up. You know, these girls would be in their 30s now. Sarah wanted to be a doctor. They both had dreams. Instead, they're buried in some uh, weed-overgrown cemetery. For Volt Studios, I'm Reed Redmond. And I'm Will Johnson. You're listening to The Daily Crime. In Dallas, Texas, testimony is underway in the trial of a man accused of killing his two daughters on New Year's Day in 2008. It haunted me. This case has haunted me throughout my career. It was just so senseless. It really broke my heart when you hear those 911 calls and you hear the girls, you hear Sarah uh, crying for help. It is, it is haunting. And in Boise, the family of a woman killed 10 years ago is continuing to seek answers. It is incredibly devastating for anyone. I just would love for it to come to an end. Will, let's start with this trial that's underway in Dallas. You've been looking into the case. Take us through the background, which which takes us back to New Year's in 2008, when Amina and Sarah Saeed were killed. That's right. And before we get to that New Year's Day, let's go back a few days earlier that December to Christmas Day. That's when Patricia Saeed and her daughters, 18-year-old Amina and 17-year-old Sarah, left town and went to Kansas. Now, we'll get into all of this and their reasons for doing that, but essentially they were frightened of their father. He was a taxi driver. His name was Yasser Saeed. They went to Tulsa after being in Kansas, and they actually rented an apartment under an assumed name, all within this you know, short span of time in December of 2007. The father, Yasser Saeed, filed a missing persons report, and they were eventually located by police. However, Patricia Saeed, Yasser's wife, did not want to call police back. She was fearful, and, and she didn't want to get back in touch. Despite all that and what was going on within this family, they decided to return back home a, a few days later. That was on New Year's Eve of 2007, even though we know that the, the, one of the daughters, Amina, begged her mom not to go back. But they went back home, and on New Year's Day, their father, Yasser Saeed, took both of the girls out to dinner. He was driving his cab. Patricia was going to go with them, but then he said he just wanted to take his daughters out to dinner. He allegedly shot both girls in the cab in a hotel parking lot in Irving, Texas. This is all within the Dallas environs. Amina had been shot twice. Sarah was shot nine times. There is just really awful, disturbing audio of a 911 call where Sarah is actually able to dial 911 and say that she was dying and that she'd been shot by her father. She names her killer. Police searched for the cab after getting the 911 call. They weren't able to find it immediately, but eventually another cabbie found the girls in the cab in the parking lot. So, Will, what else can you tell us about Yasser Saeed and what have investigators said up to this point about a possible motive in this case? Our understanding is that Yasser Saeed was controlling. He allegedly monitored everything that his girls did. There's uh, a lot of video with that, that he's actually taking of his daughter's one in particular, where he's videotaping Sarah, his daughter Sarah, at her job. Amina is in the car with her dad, and he's sort of talking about what Sarah is doing. So he's clearly you know, monitoring one of his daughters at work, and there's also videotape of them at home and, and, and quite a, a few examples of that. 
in short, the Egyptian-born Saeed was controlling and unhappy about the girls having American boyfriends and just in general, the Western influence that he was seeing in their lives. So from what our understanding is of the background on this family and the father and these daughters is that he was losing control of them. I'd like to bring in two reporters with our partner station, WFAA in Dallas. Rebecca Lopez is a senior criminal justice reporter. Also, Tanya Iser is a reporter at WFAA in Dallas. She was actually covering crime at the Dallas Morning News back in 2007 and then 2008 when all of this happened. Their every move was being recorded by their father. He was recording everything that they were doing, and sometimes it was just really creepy. And while they wanted to live American lives, he very much wanted them rooted in his traditions. And I do believe that that caused a lot of friction between the girls and their father. Well, they were like prisoners. Mm-hmm. They really were. He was. He was. He wanted them like Rebecca was saying, to, to, to live this very traditional lifestyle. But these girls, these were, these were all American girls. Mm-hmm. You know, Amina had a scholarship, a full-ride scholarship. Um, Sarah wanted to be a doctor. These girls had dreams for their lives. And, and it was not to live this kind of subservient, submissive style existence that their mother had, had lived with their father. That was not what they wanted. And... Um, I think Amina, um, my sense of it is Amina was the most aware of how dangerous their dad was. It's not an accident that when they're brought back, Amina goes to her boyfriend's house and is like, I'm not coming. I'm not coming over to that house. Following the murders, Yasser Saeed went on the run and seemingly vanished. Tell us about that search for Yasser Saeed. Well, he disappeared, and a lot of tips came in over the years. There was speculation along the way that He went to New York City, and he was still driving a cab. There were rumors that he might have returned to Egypt. But over the years, again, countless tips. And after seven years, seven years after the murders, he was put on the FBI's 10 most wanted list. And that generated tons and tons of of additional tips. Finally, in August of 2017, there was a potential break. There was a sighting in Bedford, Texas, again, outside of Dallas, a maintenance worker there thought he might have seen Yasser Saeed at Saeed's brother's apartment. The FBI agents who got this tip got a search warrant. They went to the apartment. No one was there. There was a patio door open. There were broken branches outside of this patio and a a pair of eyeglasses that they found. But it appeared that someone had made a quick getaway. Eventually, they found cigarette butts and a toothbrush and tested it for DNA. Indeed, it was a match for Yasser Saeed. So, you know, they were potentially, you know, on on his trail and very close to capturing him. However, after that, he was back on the run. There were more sightings. There was even a sighting on the Canadian border that didn't pan out. Then in August of 2020, investigators started watching a house in Justin, Texas. Now, this home had been purchased in the name of one of Yasser's brothers. They eventually followed the individuals who they saw going into this home, and it turned out to be Yasser's son and his brother, to a shopping center where they saw them getting rid of, throwing away some trash bags outside of the shopping center. Again, they found cigarette butts, other garbage in this trash. They got another search warrant, and the FBI SWAT team went in the house, and Yasser Saeed was arrested after 13 years on the run. And you have to just put this into perspective. This was 30 miles away from where he allegedly killed his daughters back in 2008. Again, here's WFAA's Tanya Iser. I think it's still a little bit shocking to me to realize that he was truly, apparently, in this area, if not the whole time, most of the time. 
that's that to me was that was still pretty shocking. Yasser's son and his brother were arrested and they were both charged with harboring a fugitive. And Yasser Saeed at the time was charged with two counts of capital murder. Just this week, then, Yasser Saeed's trial finally got underway. Tell us about the case that prosecutors were laying out this week. Well, they're painting the picture of a jealous, angry, dangerous man who controlled his daughter's lives. Prosecutor Lauren Black said, quote, he controlled what they did, who they talked to, who they could be friends with, and who they could date. Prosecutors have said that Saeed killed Sarah and Amina because he was jealous and didn't want them dating boys who were Americans. And they've also read a letter just this week that Amina wrote to their history teacher just 10 days before the girls were killed, talking about their father. And Amina wrote, quote, he has simply made our lives a nightmare. He's one man, not God. Amina wrote that she and her sister did not want to live by their father's culture and did not want to marry men from the Middle East, quote, especially men we don't know or love. And in that email, Amina wrote that their father had begun checking their phone records and had threatened to hurt Sarah, quote, very badly if she didn't tell what was going on. Do we have any indications as to what the defense's argument might look like here? Defense attorneys have told the jury they would try to prove that Saeed was targeted by law enforcement because of his Muslim faith and cultural beliefs. Again, I want to bring in Rebecca Lopez and Tanya Iser from WFAA to talk about their thoughts about the defense case in this trial. I think the prosecution is going to present their evidence. I think the defense is going to present no evidence until sentencing. I don't know how you defend him. Um, there's clearly that the Sarah names her killer uh, on the phone. They've got his fingerprints. They've got he's hiding. He's been on the FBI's most wanted list, which is the same one they put, you know, Osama bin Laden on. Uh, and so you've got all of this the stuff surrounding him. So I feel like they're only going to focus on the sentencing phase. And I'd be surprised if they present much of a defense at all. I, I, don't, I don't even know how you defend this guy. Mm-hmm. I think it's a tough one. I think you, you try, if you can, maybe to raise reasonable doubt, but, um, yeah. you know, the girl, one of the girls named their killer. Is there anything we've heard from Yasser Saeed directly? Has he ever said anything about the allegations against him? I'm not aware of anything that he has said publicly. I can tell you what Rebecca Lopez has reported on, that she has looked at documents, including a letter that Yasser Saeed has sent to the judge in the case. And it's interesting because I recently pulled some of his um, records at the uh, at the jail, and he had been writing to the judge. And in those letters, he barely mentions them, but he obviously takes no responsibility. He is the victim, which is typical of sociopaths and narcissistic people. They don't take the blame for their actions. And um, again, this is all alleged, but you know, clearly, he is. Uh, not going to take the blame. He is not going to be the one that says, oh yeah, I made a mistake. He's he's just going to stay down the path that he was somehow victimized. You mentioned Yasser Saeed's son and brother were charged. They've both been convicted of concealing a person from arrest. Have they been sentenced as of now? They have. Yasser Saeed's 32-year-old son, Islam, got 10 years for concealing his father. And his 59-year-old brother, Yassin, got 12 years in the case. And read this trial is continuing in Dallas, Texas for continuing ongoing coverage of the case. You can, of course, go to WFAA.com for more information. We just passed 10 years since 74-year-old Phyllis Ward was found dead inside her home in Boise. 
Reed, introduce us to this story. Who was Phyllis Ward? Yeah, well, so I recently spoke to a reporter with our partner station, KTVB, in Boise about this case. The reporter's Tristan Lewis, who might be familiar to some of our listeners. He's been on the show a handful of times in the past. And Tristan has talked to the daughter of Phyllis Ward, and he told me that what he learned about Phyllis is she was a retired school teacher. She taught elementary school. And in retirement, it sounds like she was a busy woman. She enjoyed sewing, dancing, and traveling. She also collected antiques, which Tristan told me were scattered around the home of her daughter, Jennifer Hawley, when he visited her. I mentioned Phyllis Ward died a decade ago. Take us through what all happened on July 23rd, 2012. Well, it started with a fire. Phyllis Ward's home was on the Boise bench, which is a part of Boise that overlooks the city. And at some point that day, her home caught fire. And it was after the home caught fire that Phyllis Ward was found dead inside. And here's where the case gets a little harder to comprehend. The Ada County coroner would soon say Phyllis Ward was a victim of foul play and determined her death as a homicide. And then an autopsy revealed she suffered multiple blows to the head from a blunt force object before the fire started. So Phyllis didn't die as a result of the fire. She was killed, and then the fire started. Here's her daughter, Jennifer Hawley, talking to Tristan Lewis about what it was like to receive that news back in 2012. It just was mind-blowing. I'm like, how could that even happen? And... Um... And then seeing the, finally seeing the death certificate that it was, um, you know, blunt force trauma, and then she was burned. It was just devastating. Reed, do we have any other information about the fire, how it might have started? Not a lot, but I'll start with what we do know. By the sound of it, it was a pretty extensive fire. Tristan Lewis reported that most of the brick home was damaged by heat from the fire. And according to Phyllis's daughter, the worst of the damage was in... Phyllis Ward's bedroom. When I learned about this case and when I learned that Phyllis had been beaten before the fire, my first question and and probably the first question on your mind too is, was the fire set to cover up evidence? Was this done to cover up the crime? And that is the part that frustratingly we don't know the answer to. Investigators with Boise police have not said whether this fire was arson or not. So where do we go from there as investigators are starting to ask who might have done this? Well, that's the thing is that there have been rumors about this case over the years, but investigators have never had enough evidence to make an arrest. They've never had enough evidence to to even name any suspects in this case. And of course, the question they've had to ask is, who would target this 74-year-old retired school teacher? Tristan talked about that aspect of the case when I talked to him, the fact that this family really has no idea who could have done this. I mean, a 74-year-old retired elementary school teacher can't imagine that she has too many enemies. Uh, They tell me they have no idea who possibly could be behind this. It just has left them shocked. And so when a month later, um, something else, another tragedy happened just a month later, again, it just prompts more questions. Tristan mentioned in that clip that there was another tragedy a month after Phyllis Ward was killed. What happened in that case? So, Will, there was another fire at the same home. So think about what this family was dealing with, the death of a loved one, and then the fact that she was murdered. And then on top of that, her home was burned, and then it's set on fire again. And the second fire, we do know that investigators believed was arson, They believe someone broke into the home and set the home on fire. And we know that that's what they believe because they would eventually arrest someone and charge that person with arson and burglary. Talk about that. Where did the investigation into the second fire lead? 
Tristan Lewis told me the investigation took a year, but there was DNA evidence in the home that eventually led police to charge a man named Stephen Eugene Roberts III with those arson and burglary charges. He was ultimately convicted and in 2014 received a sentence of 30 years for the arson charge. It would have been 25 years, but the judge enhanced the sentence because Roberts is a persistent violator. He was also sentenced on that burglary charge, and that was a sentence of 10 years with five of that fixed. But that sentence was served at the same time as the arson sentence. So Roberts must serve at least 10 years of that arson sentence before being eligible for parole. So that would make him eligible in two years in 2024. Okay, so that's all connected to the second fire. Did investigators then look at Roberts as a possible suspect in the first fire or in the death of Phyllis Ward? Of course, that's something investigators looked into, but they've said they could not find any evidence to connect Roberts to the first fire. Roberts himself has never offered an explanation as to why he broke into the home or set it on fire that second time. And so as far as the family knows, this second fire was random. It was just a random random break-in. It was, and it was so violating to me that he would like do that to our family. So Reed, where does that leave this investigation? Where might answers come from? Do we have any idea? Well, as we mentioned, we just passed 10 years since Phyllis Ward was killed. Her case is unsolved. It's still an open case. And her family at least hopes that answers might come as a result of bringing more attention to her story, to her case. Phyllis's daughter recently had a billboard put up in Boise with information about her mom. In her interview with Tristan Lewis, she said investigators do have some new information that may lead them in the right direction, but she didn't give any specifics beyond that. Boise police also didn't share any new details on that, but there could be something going on behind the scenes. So for now, the family and police are just asking anyone who knows anything to come forward. And if anyone listening to this has information, they can contact Boise Crime Stoppers at 208-343-2677. They're just asking anybody with any information to come forward. Even if you spoke to police 10 years ago about this um, case, Phil, uh, Phyllis's daughter Jennifer um, asks anyone just to come forward again. She really just wants to get some answers to who killed her mother. Um, they don't know if this is gonna bring any closure, but she's hoping it just might be able to start the healing process. All right, Reed, thanks for bringing us that story. And thanks to Tristan Lewis at KTVB in Boise, Idaho, for his reporting on that story. And also thanks to Tanya Iser and Rebecca Lopez at WFAA in Dallas, Texas. Thanks for listening to The Daily Crime. I'm Will Johnson, along with Reed Redman. We are here five days a week, Monday through Friday. Friday.